0: Good morning. 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 Holy Spirit. Uh, It was October the 4th, 2001, that I made the most important eternal decision that anyone can make in their life. I was coming towards the end of a Junction 10 Alpha course, and several things had happened. Although I thought I knew about heaven and God and Jesus and prayer, I learned things from the talk that blew me away, things I hadn't realized at all or I'd only partially known, or even worse, I thought I'd known, but I'd really not known. However, the most powerful aspect was hearing other people's experiences, their Christian walk with God. And whenever I heard stories of the Holy Spirit, how he'd moved in their lives, something just happened that I can't explain. Listening to these stories, my heart would race, I'd get excited and something would quicken within me. And um, I think it was hearing other people's experiences, particularly about the Spirit, that really brought me to a place where I knew I had to make that important eternal decision for myself. Even though there were still many, many unanswered questions. And can I say, this still happens with me. Whenever I read about John Wimber, or listen to Bill Johnson, or Robbie Dawkins, I get really excited about what a a spirit-filled life can be like. And I'm saying that because I believe God wants me to focus this preach on Holy Spirit, His Holy Spirit. And although I can't replicate the Alpha Course, I felt God wanted to give each of you the chance, albeit briefly, to share some stories with each other. So during the preach, which will be in these three sections, there'll be some time for discussion with each other, and then at the end, some personal reflection time for you to do business with God. And then we'll take communion. And my hope is that when you leave here this this morning, you can continue the conversations, that you're left with searching questions that you work through, And that there's something deposited deep within your spirit, like yeast in bread dough, will work and grow over the coming weeks. So is that okay? Are you up for that? And how about the other 200 of you? Are you up for it as well? Excellent. Brilliant. Okay. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, most precious gift of Jesus, come. Invade this place. Invade this space. Be with us, inspire us, quicken us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first section, I need to give you a very brief introduction to the Holy Spirit. There are five things I need to say for anyone who perhaps hasn't heard this sort of teaching before. The Bible says, number one, in 1 Corinthians 2.14, that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And unless you have the Spirit, spiritual things will seem foolish to you. So it's essential that if we're pursuing a spiritual life, that we have the Spirit. If we don't, we won't understand and we won't grasp spiritual things. Number two, the Holy Spirit is a person. Jesus never referred to the Holy Spirit as it. Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit as he, because he is a person. We see from Scripture that he has intellect emotions, a mind and a will. The Holy Spirit speaks, intercedes, testifies, leads, commands, teaches. He's our guide and he helps us to pray. He can be lied to, blasphemed, and he can be grieved, grieved and quenched. Although the character of the Holy Spirit is described like wind or water or oil or even a dove, He is a person. The Holy Spirit is God himself, the Spirit of Jesus. The Holy Spirit inspired the writing of Scripture and helps us to understand it. As we read the Bible with the Holy Spirit, he inspires us with a a deeper spiritual understanding. And the Bible becomes more than just words on paper, more than just any other book. Number three, the Spirit was given by Jesus. Jesus said that he would ascend to heaven and send the Holy Spirit to us, and he did just that. The Holy Spirit is described by Jesus as a good gift and one that is most precious and valuable. Number four, the Holy Spirit is given to us on our conversion. The Holy Spirit brings conviction of sin and calls us to salvation. So that our broken relationship with God can be restored. Jesus said we must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Not physically reborn, but born of the Spirit. He said, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. When we repent of our sin and accept the free gift of forgiveness that Jesus bought for us when he died on the cross then the Holy Spirit comes, regenerates our spirit, makes our spirit alive, and restores us to God. This is God's heart for every single person, for them to be restored in right intimate relationship with him as a loved son or daughter. It's a once and for all change, but it has continuing effects throughout the rest of our life and into eternity. It's just the start of a new journey of growth into spiritual maturity. And finally, number five, once we've received the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us we have to keep continually being filled. Billy Graham said that God commands that we be filled with the Spirit, and anything less than a Spirit-filled life is less than God's plan for each believer. So that's the end of section one. And it's time for a five-minute chat with each other. Uh, you're going to have a discussion now to share your story, either with a person you came with or someone next to you, or maybe someone you've never spoken before. And perhaps you could talk about your experience of the Holy Spirit. Maybe what was your first experience of the Holy Spirit? Or if you've never experienced the Holy Spirit, what do you think about what you've just heard? So a couple... Sorry to... Uh, Barging on your conversations, but I mean, we can we can stay here till three o'clock if you want and carry on, but Rousey's keen that we finish before one and hopefully <laughs> half past twelve. So I'm going to carry on now, um, and as I said before, maybe you can keep your conversation, there'll be more chance for chat in a minute, and maybe you can carry on your conversations afterwards. Um, in the group I was in, we heard two different things. We heard one person who was impacted by the Holy Spirit, and it was like they were drunk, and, you know, one minute couldn't speak, and then another minute, couldn't shut up. And another person who, it's been a bit more of a gradual process, and the Holy Spirit's been working on them. And it's great, because God moves in different ways. And what I would hope is that as we share stories, we, we understand that we're all different, and God understands that, and God works with us in the way that works for us. So the section two, uh, I'm going to talk about anointing, power, and gifts. There's a famous quote by A.W. Tozer, If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on, and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop, and everybody would know the difference. And I think that gives us a challenge, and in this section we'll look at the difference the Holy Spirit makes in anointing, gifting, and power. So anointing. In the Old Testament... People or things were anointed when they were sanctified or set apart for a task or a position by God. So we see that kings were anointed, as were prophets, priests, and judges. The act of anointing is associated with having oil poured over. So the prophet Samuel was commanded to fill his horn with oil and go to the house of Jesse, because God said, I have chosen one of Jesse's sons to be king You are to anoint the one I indicate. And if you know the story, David went to Jesse's house and sons passed before him who who Samuel thought, sorry, Samuel thought, this must be the person. He's big, he's strong, he's tough, he looks great. But God said, no, not that one, not that one, not that one, not that one. And all of the sons had gone before Samuel and Samuel said, is there another one? And David was out in the field and they brought David in. And when all the other sons had been rejected by God and David was sent for, the Lord said, rise and anoint him, this is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David. And I love the imagery of Psalm 133. How good and pleasant is it when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. And I have to say, there have actually been times in my worship where it's felt physically just like this. The oil of the Holy Spirit is flowing over and it is such a wonderful thing. And the Old Testament is a foretasting or a foreshadow of What was to come with the Messiah? Messiah means anointed one. And as you know, Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. Interesting, Joe talked about the wilderness because Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness after he'd been baptized in the river Jordan. And we pick up the story in Luke 4, verse 16, after Jesus had returned from the wilderness. He went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus, the anointed one. And in the New Testament, the anointing is the special presence of God. Anointing is used as another word for the Holy Spirit. In fact, it was the Apostle John's special word for the Spirit. And as believers, we are told in 1 John 2 that we also have an anointing one from the Holy One, and the anointing we receive from God abides in us. In October last year, I went to the Father's House Trust in Watford on a church leaders retreat, and it was Just the most amazing time with the Spirit. I mean, little did I know what God was preparing me for when I got back. And at some stage I might share a little bit more detail about what happened. But one of the profound and beautiful things over the five-day period in God's presence was being prayed for, prophesied over, and receiving a fresh anointing of the Spirit. And I really did feel when I came back this power of the Spirit afresh. The anointing empowers our gifting in the most natural way in the world. Like eating or breathing, the gift is always there, but it doesn't always function easily. It's the anointing that makes the gift function with ease. So let's look at gifts. A number of Bible passages deal with different gifts of the Spirit, and I'll summarise them. The gifts include wisdom, words of knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, Prophecy, discernment of spirits, speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, administration, helps, serving, giving, leadership, mercy, exhortation, And there are gifts to the church of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. That's a lot of gifts and I'm sure it's not a full list. In 1 Corinthians 14 verse 1, it says we should eagerly, Desire the gifts of the Spirit. God always gives us good gifts. And I believe that God has given gifts to every Christian. And we have two primary responsibilities. Most importantly, as it says in 1 Peter 4, verse 10, we are to use our gifts to serve one another. They're not gifts for us, they're given for us to serve. And secondly, with the Holy Spirit's help, I believe we are commanded to seek and discover what those gifts are and to cultivate and develop the gifts so that they naturally flow well. This is called stewardship, and God expects us to steward what he's given us. A couple of weeks ago, it was Millie's seventh birthday and I was really amazed the difference this year between that uh, last year of how meticulously and carefully she opened each card and each present. She read every single word on the front, in the middle, on the back, what people had written, what the card company had written. And, and it was like, it was amazing. And all other speed was a little frustrating. I mean, an hour later, we were still going. Um, <laughs> It was a real delight to watch how she relished and appreciated her presence and then over the next few weeks learned how to use the gifts she'd been given. As a loving dad, how do you think I would feel if I gave Millie a beautifully wrapped gift for her to open, to enjoy and to share but she just left them unopened in the corner of a room? We must steward the gifts God has given us. And another thing I wanted to say about gifts, or more so I think God wanted me to say about gifts, is that you are a wonderful gift. You are a wonderful gift. Let me tell you with absolute complete assurance that you are God's most precious gift. He loves you so much you can't imagine or realise how much he actually loves you. And I know that these words are hard for some people to hear, that there are those here who struggle to believe and receive that love. You know the depths of your heart. You know what sort of person you are. And you're thinking to yourself, now I can believe that God loves other people, but I can't believe that about me. Let me say to you, God knows all that stuff about you and more than you'd imagine. But he created you, he knew you before you knew yourself, and he loves you with an unending, everlasting, tender love. Can I also say that you are a gift to this church The Bible uses the analogy like being part of a body to show how invaluable you are as a gift. So please, maybe, think about how you as a gift and how your gifts are being served into this church. We have so many things that we need to do, uh, you know, from things like tea and coffee to technical to all sorts of things. And we have quite a small proportion of the church who are actually doing lots and lots and lots and lots. And that would be lovely if we had more and more percentage of the church so that all of us are engaged in serving. Um, Character and grace, though, have to go before gifting. I am passionate about us as a church, us as individuals growing in the gifts of the Spirit, but I am more passionate that gifts have their correct place. Before gifting, we have to have character, grace, and love to correctly handle those gifts. Do you remember the story of Joseph in the Bible? Oh, you don't. If you don't, uh, right, I'm going to remind you about it. Uh, He was given uh, a gift by his dad, Jacob, because he was favoured, a coat of many colours, and it made his brothers jealous. But he was also given a gift from his heavenly father to interpret dreams. And as none of you remember the story, I'm going to sing to you. This is the song. Joseph's coat annoyed his brothers, but what made them mad were the things that Joseph told them of, the dreams he'd often had. And you deserve that, because you... <laughs> Next time I ask the question, you're going to say yes, aren't you? <laughs> um, Joseph continued to flaunt his gift in front of his brothers until they could take it no more. Let me tell you, there was nothing at all wrong with Joseph's gift. But there was a lot wrong with Joseph. He wasn't ready to use that gift and he abused the grace that should have accompanied it. Joseph's anointing or grace gift needed to be refined. And he needed an equal amount of grace to his gift. He needed the spiritual fruit to enable the gift to work properly. Slavery and prison were the arena that God used to chasten and discipline Joseph until his grace and sensitivity matched the power of his gift. And my word, the results were absolutely amazing. So let's talk about power. Um, I mentioned earlier that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan. And this is what the Bible says. As he came out of the water, the Holy Spirit came on him like a dove, and the Father speaks, This is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Then the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. Luke 4.14 says, Jesus returned after 40 days in the power of the Spirit. And this is really interesting and should make us think about our own Spirit-filled life. And links into what Joe said about this wilderness period that we feel God's leading us in. Because Jesus had been baptised in water, he had the Holy Spirit descend and remain on him, he'd heard an amazing affirmation from the Father, but it was only after his time in the wilderness did he return in the power of the of the Spirit. And just going off off piste a little bit here, I believe that God has a power for us as individuals that we haven't even scratched the surface of. But I believe as a church, oh my Lord, there is something very special and something very powerful that God is leading us to. And church, we have to contend with that. We have to contend for that. Um the good news is that the power wasn't just for Jesus. After being raised from the dead, Jesus said to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And even better news, this power wasn't just for the disciples. It's for us too. Romans 8:11 and Ephesians 1, verse 19 says, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. Wow. Can we really grasp that? Well, let's see, because it's time for our next discussion. Um, can you either tell the same person as before or change it around? It's entirely up to you. Uh, maybe just tell them of when you felt the most anointed or you felt the power or experienced the gifts of the Spirit or maybe when you've seen someone else who you felt was anointed. And we'll just have a couple of minutes chatting again. Off you go. That's brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. Um, i better get a move on because we've still got a, a, bit, a bit of the journey to go together. So moving on to the last section, uh, sensitivity, quenching, and fruit. So let's start with sensitivity. Uh, one picture of the Holy Spirit is that of a dove. There's a true story that uh, R.T. Kendall tells of a British couple who were on mission to Israel and had been given a house. When they moved in, they realised that there was a dove living in the eaves. They were honoured to be living in Jerusalem and particularly thrilled to have a dove come live there as they saw it as a confirmation, a seal of approval that they were in the right place. However, they soon noticed that the dove became unsettled. Every time a door was slammed or voices were raised and the dove would fly off and sometimes not return for a good while. They were worried that they might be in danger of frightening the dove off permanently and so had a choice. They either continued to behave as they'd always done or adjust and change their behaviour so that this precious dove that meant so much to them remained. They decided to adjust and as they adjusted to the dove, their lives were never the same again. How much more important do you suppose is the company of the heavenly dove, the Holy Spirit, whose personality is far more sensitive than an earthly dove. Your own life can be wonderfully altered overnight, and you too will never be the same if you deliberately and consciously choose to adjust to the dove. He will manifest himself in surprising ways, and I promise you the consequences are incalculable. However we can, and often do, become insensitive to the Spirit. We grieve Him. We can quench Him in many ways. And the real sad thing is that many times we don't even realize it. So let's look at a few ways we might quench or become insensitive to the Spirit. Uh, If we're not regularly praying and connecting with God, then our sensitivity will dull. If we go our own way, based on our subjective feelings rather than his word, or if we're overindulging our desires, particularly ungodly desires, if we're not accountable, or if we ignore the promptings and guidance of the Spirit, or if we intentionally disobey, or we care more about what people think than what God thinks. Simple things like if we forget to thank the Lord and be grateful if we don't recognise the bruised reed and we treat others around us poorly. We can grieve the spirit if we engage in acts of sin. The Bible calls it living like pagans. Uh, and again, there's a big list, but I'll just give you a few examples. And everyone will recognise things like sexual immorality, witchcraft, stealing, murder. But the Bible says that equally as damaging, just pause on that, equally as damaging is bitterness, unforgiveness, fits of anger, gossip, pride, hatred, envy and jealousy, being unmerciful. So if that is what quenches and grieves the Spirit, let's talk about fruit. The final part of the preach is about fruit, and for me... It is the most important. If you've heard nothing else, this is the thing I've been working up to. This is the pinnacle of what I want to say to you. Galatians 5, verse 22 to 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And there is a mystery in this. Lord, let us never try to explain your mysteries. Let us never get so clever that we know all the answers because this whole walk is a mystery. And the mystery in this is is that in one way, the fruit is all down to the Spirit. We can't make fruit. It has to be grown. We can't sort of... if If we had a tree in our garden, we could get an apple from the shop and we could tie it onto the branch... But it's not the fruit tree creating the fruit. And the fruit in our life is the evidence that the Spirit is abiding in us. However, although it's all down to the Spirit, we have our part to play. We can't just say, well, we've got the Spirit and sit back. We have to adjust to the Spirit. Colossians 3 verse 12 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy... And dearly loved, clothe yourselves with tender hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Tender hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So we're to clothe ourselves. The Spirit grows the fruit, but we create the right conditions. We have to receive the Spirit. We have to adjust to him, we have to partner with him, and we have to clothe ourselves with the qualities that allow him to abide in us and grow the fruit in us. But why is this so important? Why is this the pinnacle? Well, I've talked about gifts, anointing, and power earlier, but a danger we have to safeguard against, like Joseph in the story, is a strong gift that's not accompanied by sufficient grace and measure of the Spirit. You see, God's gifts are irrevocable. The Bible says, God will give you a gift. It will not be taken away. But the anointing can depart. And people can still operate in their gifts, not realising that it's yesterday's anointing. And Jesus said, when we look at people who say they know God, and who say they're speaking on his behalf, What did he say? Did he say we're to look at what they say? No. Did he say we're to look at their hard work? No. Did he say we're to look at their amazing gifts? No. He said, by their fruit you will know them. Jesus said we're not to consider the outward appearance because God looks at the heart. It's the overflow of the heart where either the fruit of the Spirit or the evidence of a different Spirit are revealed. You can do great acts of service. You can come to every meeting at your church. You can work really hard for God and still be far, far away from his heart. God said this in the Bible. They worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. For God, it is all about the heart. And I have heard Christians described as faithful... Because they come time and again to church on Sundays to worship God, to midweek meetings, and because they give their time and give their money. Brilliant! These are all really, really, really good things to do, and I would encourage you to do them. But if we are going to judge faithfulness, let it be their love, their joy, their patience, their kindness, their gentleness, their mercy, their grace. Commitment to church programs isn't the same as following Jesus. And Jesus only ever asks us to follow him. And it doesn't matter how great I am at keeping the rules of religion. The best religious leaders of Jesus' day were called whitewashed tombs by Jesus. They looked great on the outside, dead and rotten on the inside. They seemed to be the ones who knew all about God. But had they really known God and been close to his heart they would have shown mercy, grace, compassion, rather than legalism, piousness, and self-righteousness. You see, when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, it's no coincidence that love is mentioned first. Love is the barometer of faith. Anything else is a false measure. I'm going to finish with a famous Bible passage about love. Usually this is associated with weddings, In fact, my daughter Leanne, I read it at her wedding. It was a favourite passage. But it was not written to a man and a woman getting married. It was written to a bride, the bride of Christ. A church. In fact, a number of churches it was meant to be circulated and passed round. It was written to a church, just like this church. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries all the knowledge and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love I am nothing If I give all to possess if I give all I possess to the poor And give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we only see a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love.